this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. Don't forget you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. Coming up on today's episode, what do points mean? Prizes. We try to explain the Australian-style points-based immigration system that we have that was supposed to give us control of who was coming in. So why are we heading for record levels of net migration. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, it's Tuesday, so it must be... In a world of politics without the boring bits, get ready for blockbuster debate on Times Radio. One is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. Go on then, who is it? Chuckle Vision. Yes, the Chuckle... You're Harry the and Ch- Paul. The Chuckle Brothers of um, News Analysis, <laughs> which I think means... So, uh, Paul is slightly older, I think. It's little time for Henry to tell us about talking about Michael Martin McGuinness at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Can I make an embarrassing admission Go about on. the Dominic Raab thing? I never could understand what was that wrong with saying that the sea was closed. I understood exactly what he meant by it. It means you couldn't swim in it because they said it was dangerous, so they stopped, they closed the sea so we couldn't go in it. But it's just something quite funny about saying the sea. And also, if you... But it was closed. But if you were nose to the grindstone working on the evacuation of Kabul from your hotel room, you wouldn't know about oh, the arrangements see, for, well, for uh, wakeboarding or whatever it was he was, he was right. planning to do. I see. That's what everyone was trying to guess at, weren't they? Um, Because there are lots of things that you could say about Dominic Ra, but there's this sort of arose this kind of very odd idea that he was stupid. And I really don't think he is stupid. So the answer to the question of what he's going to do well, is probably do quite is probably do quite a serious job in the law. So the, the, the reason the reason he's got a reputation for being stupid is he does say stupid things. Yeah, but that was given as an example. Well, no, all right, then, but what about stupid. saying misogyny is wrong, whether it's between a man and a woman or a woman and a man? Well, yes, saying he that... did, hadn't fully appreciated how close France was to England. Well, no, actually, what he said, what, <laughs> what, what he, what he actually didn't quite say that. He said he, he hadn't appreciated the centrality of the uh, yeah. of the crossing. Well, I'm sure lots of people hadn't. I mean, obviously, they should have done before they yeah. uh, proposed Brexit. I accept that. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I think that the idea that he was stupid, he said, rather, he said rather he kind of rather rather missed the point of him. I mean, I thought he was too right. He's too right wing for me in lots of different ways, and I really disagreed with you know things like the British Bill of Rights. I thought some of those things. Now, I suppose colloquially you might describe them as stupid, but I didn't think they were because he was thick, you know, because I just don't think he is. He said he didn't want to put a border down the Red Sea when he meant the Irish Sea. These are all things off the top of my head. Well, okay, you can, you can, you can say, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, that last maybe one. he just had a habit of saying, uh, of misspeaking rather than. He does do a lot of speaking, though, yeah. if, you're a, if you're a cabinet minister. So why is he standing down then, Henry? Well, I don't, I don't completely dismiss his stated rationale, which is that he wants to spend more time with his, his two sons. I mean, actually, you know, one of the things about that evacuation uh, from Kabul when he was in, uh, wherever he was, was it Greece? Um, yes. Was, was that, um, uh, you know, he, he basically wanted to have the first family holiday he had had in a year and a half of being foreign secretary. And actually, I remember speaking to uh, someone who'd worked very closely with him during that period, saying the irony was he worked obsessively, insanely, counterproductively hard for his entire period as Foreign Secretary. And then that was the one time 
uh, he took a break. Um, and the other thing I remember hearing, um, and this was from someone who had called up to tell me that they thought Dominic Raab was a bully, was that uh, during uh, his incredibly crowded ministerial diary, the one thing that he would never allow to be moved was something he was doing with his family, be it bath time, be it taking a kid to a football match or something like that. Um, however, uh, in addition to all that, he's clearly going to lose his seat. And I can see why he'd rather start the business of getting in touch with headhunters now rather than yeah, in the well, aftermath of an election. That's thing. obviously going to be a crucial part of the uh, equation. But then you do also reach a point in your uh, career where you think to yourself, I'm probably not coming back in. Yeah. Uh, he This probably is a commentary on whether he thinks the Tories are going to win the election as well as on his own seat. If the Tories were to win the election and Rishi Sunak were still to be Prime Minister, I suppose you'd think there might be a chance I'd come back. Uh, he thinks that isn't going to happen. That's This statement is a statement that he thinks is not going to happen. And so, um, not being an idiot, uh, <laughs> he has decided that he doesn't want to stick around for it. And I suppose, you know, there's also that thing of he's been Foreign Secretary, he's been Justice Secretary, he's been Deputy Prime Minister. You know, even if he did come back, is, is it hanging on for the vague possibility of possibly being transport secretary? Yeah. Being a member of parliament is very hard on your family life. It's a very hard way of working. I remember going to synagogue, um, dropping my son off once for a, a class at my synagogue. And as I came in, as I was leaving the synagogue to go and have breakfast with a friend of mine, into the synagogue came Nick Hurd, my local MP. And I thought, this guy's got to actually sit through a synagogue service in my synagogue. He wasn't Jewish, that I didn't have to go to. I could go to breakfast. And he was dressed in a suit. It was a Saturday morning. And I thought, oh, my God, I can see why my wife didn't want me to become an MP now. <laughs> uh, yeah. hard. Well, no, I mean, like, look, it, 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 it clearly is. And I think there's also an extra element to it, which is that it is quite rare. I mean, I can only really think of Theresa May, though I'm sure there are others, uh, that someone who has um, flown very high in government uh, is willing to hang around on the back benches for yeah, a long time. Yeah. Because I think once you've done that, once you've been at the heart of decision-making, once... I mean, in Dominic Raab's case, he was acting Prime Minister for, what, a month during a uh, you know public health emergency, the likes of which we've never seen before and probably won't see again for a very long time. Like, of course he doesn't want to... I'm sure he cares very deeply for his constituents, but I don't think five years of, of only dealing with his constituents would attract him in the same way. His wife will also probably have had a, a voice. I met a friend of mine who was a, a member of Parliament. So he was getting out of the cupboard a big on a Saturday morning a big sign that says I'm X and I'm here to help. He was going to put it outside the supermarket and he got it out and his wife said, you're not here to help you're standing outside the supermarket <laughs> and that, there is a tension between the things that you are that you do for your family and the things that you do in public life and I suppose he's probably reached the point where he, the balance has tipped, so yeah. I understand that but clearly if he thought the Conservatives were going to win the election and he thought he was going to keep his seat, he probably would make it the large chances he'd made a different calculation. Not yeah. 100% certain, but a large chance. It's probably deprived us of the most likely Portillo moments uh, at the next election. I think there can be a few of those. Yeah. I don't think, I think there'll be a competition for them. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the logic of the local elections is, is that, you know, even Dominic Raab's successor as Deputy Prime Minister, Oliver Dowden, on an extremely bad night for the Conservatives, uh, you know, might even just about be possible. So think, you know, the thing about Portillo, I was the, I was in um, Conservative Central Office that evening uh, with the only person who um, what, did not suffer a Portillo moment, which was William Hague, as almost everybody lost their seat. <laughs> and I remember standing near William, thinking, "You're going to be the next leader of the Conservative Party," um, because you know so many of his rivals were falling. And the Portillo moment became important because. Uh, 
just as the peak one, but there could have been any number of other ones if it hadn't been him. Who, who is the Welsh secretary now? David T.C. Davis. David I think, yeah, maybe less likely that uh, the mantle falls to him. But <laughs> <laughs> who knows how many ones you never know. Seats. You never know. What about Svella Bravman? We've been told that she's on leadership manoeuvres, despite the fact that only 27 of her colleagues actually backed her last summer. But we, you know, we're all goldfish now, Henry, so nobody actually remembers anything that happened as far back as July. Yes, it's a funny way to mount a leadership campaign, constantly being in the papers for doing things which um, haven't gone massively well. Um, look, I mean, it is clearly true, as some of her um, outriders, allies, sources close to uh, intimate, that were she to be brought down by the current uh, scandal, feels too strong, but, you know, run of stories, um, you know, she would she would hold Rishi Sunak's feet to the fire from the back benches. Uh, whether that would be enough to calcify into a leadership bid at least this time of a general election, uh, I, I, I doubt very much because, as you say, her support on the back benches is quite limited. But there's a difference between the number of people willing to make her prime minister following Boris Johnson last year and the number of people willing to join with her in this scenario in um, making the government's life difficult. And, and that's, that will be a calculation playing out. Yeah, and also she's been Home Secretary since that 27 votes and there, there isn't the alternative poll of extraordinarily of Liz Truss uh, to attract uh, support. <laughs> so, um, you know, so she's in a different position. I, I, I think her chances are relatively limited in most circumstances, but they're certainly not non-existent. I, I can understand why she, sadly, by the way, um, but I can understand why she harbours an ambition. Well, I suppose there's harbouring an ambition and um, uh, actually being able to, to, to live with it. Well, we'll see. We'll see how she gets on. I want to ask you as well about the um, the, the latest grouping, the, the, the new Conservatives, to add to all the others, the Common Sense Group, the Northern Research Group, the One Nation Conservatives and many others. Uh, this was Jonathan Gullis, <coughs> who I spoke to a bit earlier. Well, the first three you listed, first of all, Matt, were focused on very specific issues. What's new about this group is, as you say, it's the 2019 and 17 Conservative members of Parliament coming together to basically come up with a policy agenda that will be really exciting for the next manifesto that will help to keep the coalition of voters that were formed in 2019 that got the Conservative Party that 80 majority. I asked him if uh, this group of 2017 and 2019 was just a support group for MPs who are going to lose their seats, and he did at least laugh, Danny. How, how concerned should Richie Sinat be about another group? Well, it's not a good thing, is it? And when you begin to get, go behind in the polls, every, I mean, I remember this from working for John Major, everybody has got a strategy for saving it. It's interesting that Jonathan Gullis talks about the coalition that uh, elected the Conservative Party in uh, 2019, because he clearly thinks only his sort of Conservative and only his sort of seat were part of that coalition. The, the whole point of coalitions is that they don't yeah. just consist of you. Uh, and uh, one of the, that's one of the things these groups don't seem to appreciate, and they want to pull Rishi Sunak to supporting their particular version of conservatism. That for those people who haven't read it and are, are instead making the mistake of listening to us, um, the, uh, the article by William Hague um, this morning about what was wrong with that National Conservatism Conference is, t is totally brilliant. He puts his finger on the enduring appeal of conservatism as non-ideological um, and or at least, you know, I mean, I know people, you know, strict philosophers will disagree with that interpretation, but as an, uh, but, he, but he says that, you know, the more ideological it gets, uh, the weaker it gets. And a lot of these groups are making a mistake of trying to sort of seek some perfect ideology using the idea that they support some... That a new, you know, the Conservative coalition that was supported in 2019, where in fact, actually, they're supporting a kind of narrow version of it. Because Henry, ultimately, Boris Johnson is probably the least ideological person you could come across, which is how he managed to straddle that coalition. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that was a crucial part of his appeal, as well as his personality, and as well as the fact that 
it was a straight choice between him and Jeremy Corbyn to be slash remain prime minister. Um, I think his ideological malleability allowed people across a very wide political spectrum to convince themselves that he would, uh, you know, he would govern in, in a way that they that they liked. I mean, I think what is um, slightly eccentric about the uh, argument advanced by this new Conservatives group is. Um, is the idea that policy is what might save Rishi Sunak or, or rather sort of government policy across a, a, a suite of issues. I think, you know, the best way that Rishi Sunak can come up with to um, win the next election yeah. is to address the cost of living, is to make people's um, lives better in a very narrow sense. You know, I don't think at this point reversing cuts to the size of the army or whatever, you know. Um, and now, look, that might lead you to some new conservative policy ideas. You know, there may be an argument that the tax cuts that they seek is a way to reduce yeah. the cost of living. But, you know, I don't think Rishi Sunak is going to recover the Conservatives' electoral position by um, showing people who voted for the Conservatives for the first time in 2019 that look how wide-ranging my policy <laughs> agenda is. I just don't think that's that's quite how it's going to work. Right, now let's go back to a conversation we touched on briefly last week. We talked about votes at 16 and uh, Keir Starmer suggesting that he, he was in favour or at least we'll look at it. Uh, so we asked YouGov to poll the question. Uh, and actually, they polled two different questions, giving very slightly different answers. Uh, but the public seem opposed uh, regardless. Uh, to, uh, do you think that uh, 16, 17-year-olds should be given the vote? To what extent do you support or oppose that? 30% oppose. Uh, sorry, 30% support it. 48% oppose. Uh, and <coughs> when you talk about reducing the voting age from 18 to 16, the opposition goes up a bit. But Danny, you mentioned last week that you supported it. Yes, I was I quite interested to flesh out why. Well, it's not as though, like a lot of things, there are, of course, serious arguments against it. So I'm not saying that the, you know, the argument for it is the only one. But my, my view is that um, voting has consequences politicians tip their proposals to all vote towards the people who can vote. It's the reason why Martin Luther King concentrated on the power to vote. He thought that was the route to improving civil rights uh, for African Americans. In exactly the same way, I think we need to tip the system more towards uh, the future of the country, towards young people who get whose whose support for our basic model of a liber of liberal democracy and welfare capitalism is quite weak. Uh, and um, that poses a threat to the long-term stability of the country. I think there there are lots of smaller, more instrumental things. So, for example, I think that, uh, you know, you might get higher voter turnout among young people if they all were together in uh, in education at that point. Um, and I think there are civil rights arguments for it, which is that there's a lot we expect from people over the age of 16. Um, but the most important reason is that I think it will tip the system uh, towards people who've got a long time to go, uh, therefore making the future, um, you know, a, a better bet for politicians. I think so that would be a good thing. It's interesting, Henry, that in, uh, in the, the polling for us, 48% of Labour voters support giving 16 and 17-year-olds uh, the vote. That's the only group. Only 9% of Tories, 34% of Lib Dems. Um, so c clearly they've got a sort of vested interest in this, that young people tend to vote more to the left, and that's why you might expect Keir Starmer to want to expand the franchise. Yeah, I mean, also, I guess you could say if you're more uh, instinctively in favour of keeping things as they are, then you're more likely to be a Conservative, right? So so there's that there. But um, yeah, I mean, Labour voters will think, I think rightly, that this is more likely to produce a, a, a chunk of Labour voters than, than any other party. Um, I mean, I interviewed Keir Starmer, gosh, it was a, a week ago, it feels about 
a year ago, I've been been to Japan <laughs> and Japan back and with Rishi uh, yeah. Sunak since. Um, yeah, a week ago, and and uh, Steve Swinford and I asked him about this, and I was very struck by. I mean, he did not rule it out. He did not ditch it, and and he, we were also talking about the the proposal for votes for EU citizens. But um, he said something like, uh, "Look, I've got five missions. Those are my five priorities." Uh, you can see pretty clearly that electoral change, I think was the phrase he used, is not one of them. So if Keir Starmer were Prime Minister for a decade, do I think he might change the franchise? Yeah, possibly. If Keir Starmer were Prime Minister for five years, do I think he'd get around to it? Uh, Probably lucky, not. It's lucky you didn't make it a vow, then he definitely wouldn't have done it. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to work out yesterday, his, the third the third mission had two, two shifts to deliver two goals to tackle three killers. It was very, it was very complicated. Well, as, as Patrick Maguire and I wrote yesterday... Um, there is there is a degree of consternation uh, in Labour High Command about piece, the uh, the language of the missions and whether even if it might be a good way to run a government, whether it's um, too bureaucratic a way to campaign. But the trouble is, he's got to plough on with it now because he's done he's done three, so he's still got to do speeches on the two or the, the, the poles yeah. of the pillars. You, of the you're mission. always told when you do things like Question Time, for, uh, you know, for the BBC, for, for goodness' sake, don't say you've got five points to make because the <laughs> audience immediately <laughs> thinks, "Oh God, he's only reached the second one." <laughs> fifthly, fifthly. Anyway, uh, lovely. Luckily, you made all of your points in good time. So, uh, lovely to see you both. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeppelin there. Of course, you can read the stories we were discussing. Just hit the links in the podcast description and subscribe to The Times at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, what do points make? You're listening to The Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Points make prizes. What do points make? Points-based system. Australian points-based system. An Australian-style points-based system. We'll have a points-based system. We're going to have an Australian-style points-based system. Yeah, it was the answer to Britain's immigration problem. Take back control and decide who can come in. But as new figures this week will show record net migration, we ask, what's the point of the points-based system. Now, the level of net migration, that's the number of people coming to the UK minus the number of people leaving, so the net increase in the number of people here, has been a key issue within the Conservative Party for more than a decade. When David Cameron became Prime Minister, the official figures show that just under 250,000 people came to the UK in the year to 2010. David Cameron promised to get those numbers down. We would like to see net immigration in the tens of thousands rather than the hundreds of thousands. But he was unable to meet the targets he set. Theresa May was the Home Secretary at the time. Before we came into government, we said that we wanted to bring net migration down to the tens of thousands. It is, of course, unlikely that we're going to reach the uh, the tens tens of of thousands by the end of the Parliament. Indeed, net migration increased to around 330,000 in 2015. It hasn't been below 100,000 since 1998. And that became a key issue, particularly for Brexit-supporting Conservatives heading into the referendum in 2016. I think they show the scandal of politicians continually promising year after year that they can cut immigration to the tens of thousands when they have absolutely no control, provided we remain within the European Union. Indeed, Brexit offered a chance to... Take back control. We will be taking back control. ...with new rules to reduce the number of EU migrants coming to Britain. 
So, once she became Prime Minister, Theresa May restated David Cameron's original target. It's important that we have net migration that is in sustainable numbers. We believe sustainable numbers are the tens of thousands. Uh, obviously, leaving the European Union means we can bring in control in relation to people moving from the EU into the UK, as well as people from outside the EU coming into the United Kingdom. That was in 2017. Two years later, the level of net migration was at around 220,000 people a year. So then Boris Johnson promised to bring those levels down with even stricter rules. I've said that what we want to do is bear down on uh, migration, particularly of unskilled workers who have no job to come to. We will introduce an Australian-style points-based immigration system. We're going to have an Australian-style points-based system. But last year, partly due to the number of Ukrainian refugees that arrived in the UK, the numbers increased by over 300,000. In fact, 504,000 people were estimated to have uh, come to the UK illegally in, in terms of net migration. Well, speaking in Japan last week, Rishi Sunak, after a bit of pressure, did eventually promise to bring down the numbers of legal migration, but wouldn't put a number on the target. So I want to bring the levels of legal migration down. But I think it's important because I spend a lot of my time talking to people. And when it comes to migration, what I hear from everyone is the priority they have for the government is to stop the boats. So on Thursday this week, the latest annual official figures will be published. And net migration is predicted to rise to 600, maybe even 700,000 pounds. Some predictions it could go as high as a million. In the middle of what is already a difficult week for Home Secretary Suella Bravman, we thought we'd take a look at why successive governments have failed to deliver on those promises, even after we took back control. Madeline Sumption is the Director at the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford and joins me now. Hi, Madeline. Good morning. Um, just explain for us what the, how these figures sort of tot up, if you like. How have we gone from a situation of, let's get the numbers to uh, tens of thousands, <coughs> to... Five, six hundred thousand more people coming in terms of net migration. What, what's, what's the makeup? Mm. Well, who are who are these people? So the current situation is actually quite unusual um, because you have uh, several things that have come together at once instead of late you know, 2021, 2022 um, to push up the numbers, uh, most likely temporarily, but we can come on to that. Um, so you basically have on the one hand, you've got the war in Ukraine and a lot of people uh, leaving Ukraine and also leaving Hong Kong under a special scheme for, uh, for British nationals overseas. Um, then you've got... Um, uh, a, a big increase in the number of international students coming to, to study in the UK. And alongside that, an increase in the number of skilled workers, particularly skilled workers coming into health and care jobs. And those things together contributed to unusually high numbers. Um, now, the sort of reasonable expectation, obviously, these things are really difficult to forecast, but I think there is a reasonable expectation that the numbers will start to ease off and maybe decline in the next couple of years um, because we'll have fewer people coming in uh, from Ukraine, at least, you know, depending obviously on how conditions, um, uh, how the, the development of the war in Ukraine. But then also we expect to see in the past, um, uh, the large majority of international students have eventually left the UK. And as that larger number of international students starts leaving um, over the next couple of years, um, it's it's quite likely that that will contribute to some reduction in, in net migration, uh, with the caveat that this is all very hard to forecast. <laughs> Explain for, for us and for listeners, what is a points-based system? And if we are in control of it, why don't we change the points so that fewer people come here? 
Yeah, so a, a points-based system is really in the eye of a beholder. The, the phrase doesn't actually really mean anything at all. It sort of just means that someone's written some numbers on the right-hand side of the page. Uh, the system that we have is is not Australian style. It's basically pretty similar to what we had for non-EU citizens um, before the end of free movement, and that's now been applied to uh, EU citizens as well. Um, our, the way that the UK's uh, points-based system works is that people have to have a job offer, um, a skilled job offer from, uh, from an employer, and they have to meet a certain salary threshold and if the employer is licensed to sponsor workers um, then they're able to come in uh, on a long-term visa. And so is it possible to tweak that system uh, in order to have fewer people coming here? Um, it, it, I suppose essentially the question is well is the mistake to have promised to reduce migration, net migration, when you've set up a system that would allow more people to come? It's interesting. I mean, if you if you had asked me three years ago, uh, do you think that net migration will be 500,000 under the post-Brexit immigration system? I would have said no. Um, uh, I would have said, and indeed, uh, all of the forecasts that were made at the time suggested that, um, that the post-Brexit immigration system would reduce overall net migration to the UK um, uh, because there was going to be a big restriction, much more restrictive system for EU citizens and a little bit of a liberalisation for non-EU. Um, now, what did happen was, uh, was on the EU side, uh, there has, uh, there's been a, a big reduction in net migration of EU citizens. So there are now actually more people uh, leaving than arriving from, from EU countries. The thing that no one expected, and I think probably couldn't have been predicted, uh, was the, the big increase that we've seen in, in non-EU migration. Uh, part of that, as you've mentioned, war in Ukraine. Even the increase in international students, I think, um, is actually quite surprising. We had a very similar policy regime in place about 15 years ago, with much smaller numbers of people um, using it. So I, th I think sometimes and one reason that actually governments sometimes struggle to put a number on exactly what they want that migration to be um, is that uh, the same set of policies in place can deliver uh, quite different numbers of people at different points of time for reasons that um, uh, sometimes are, are a little bit unclear. Manny, just stay with us because I want to get a sense of where the public opinion is on this. Beth Mann is Research Executive at YouGov. Morning, Beth. Morning. Uh, take us through, I know you've done some polling for us on, on attitudes to where we are in immigration right now. Um, what, what, what does the public think about the levels of migration and has that changed since we took back control? So yeah, in general, it is true that people do think there has been too much immigration over the last 10 years and that hasn't really changed since Brexit and things like that. We do still pe think, see people thinking that it is, has been too high. But if you dig a bit deeper, you do find that it's not that people want immigration numbers to be reduced full stop. It's the type of immigrants that they want to be controlled. So illegal immigration, for one, which was highlighted in the polling I recently did, um, we asked the public whether they think the government should focus more on reducing the number of immigrants overall or whether it should be illegal immigration that they focus on more. And 51% said illegal immigration, with only 20% saying reducing the numbers overall. And 21% actually said neither, which could be um, interpreted as not reducing them at all. And you also looked at some of the, because it, people say, oh, we want fewer people coming here. But then you start digging into the occupations a bit. The, um, the public seems to have quite a strong understanding of the sort of jobs that we need. Yeah, and that's where the complexity of the issue yeah. 
grows even further. Um, we actually see people want a lot more people working, um, immigrants to come over and work in our health sector. So we find around 50% saying they want more people to come over and work as a doctor, as nurses, and just under 50% as care workers. And we see that in our trackers as well. And that's been a, a long held opinion that people do think we really need more people coming over and helping us in our British health service. Madeline, is this where the, the sort of the tension in this whole debate lies? That on the one hand, there's a sort of political conversation going on about bringing down the numbers. We want fewer people coming here. We've taken back control, Australian-based based system. Then over here, you've got quite a sophisticated understanding among the public that actually we do need some more nurses, construction workers, people to pick the fruit and veg, and actually uh, they just want a sense of control. Uh, and those two things seem to be going on sort of simultaneously but without ever sort of speaking to each other. So public opinion and uh, you know, political opinion, there is some inconsistency, which is that um, often you have people who want to bring down overall migration, but actually they're quite supportive of the various different components that make up overall migration. Particularly, some of the biggest categories are the ones that are actually most um, popular, or sort of you know where the people are least likely to want to, to reduce, like people coming to the health and care sector, like international students or Ukrainian refugees. Um, I, I think when it comes to numbers, I think the big sort of takeaway is that it's very... It it's very difficult to talk about, well, this is what we're going to do on overall numbers. Um, or it's, maybe it's, it's not that helpful to talk about the plan on overall numbers without talking about which the actual groups are that yeah. uh, that you're going to restrict, because otherwise you end up with a risk that sort of, you know, there's bold rhetoric about reducing numbers. Um, but actually, the specific, when you get to the specific policy choices, um, the government doesn't necessarily want to actually take the choices that would bring down the numbers. So let's look now at what's going to happen this week. We're going to get some new figures which are expected to show that net migration has reached perhaps 600, perhaps 700,000, well ahead of the tens of thousands the Tories used to promise. But is that a good or a bad thing? Let's bring in James Kirkup, Director of the Social Market Foundation. Hi, James. Hello. Uh, we've also got David Goodhart, Head of Dem uh, Demography, Immigration and the Integration Unit at the Policy Exchange Think Tank. Hi, David. Hello, Ian proper think tank off uh, this morning. Uh, James, higher legal net migration, a good or a bad thing? Um, I work for a think tank. I'm not, you know I'm not going to give you a clear, clear and simple answer on that question. That's what I thought. Um, I'd but, at least keep, I'd bring I'm, some clarity to the question. I know. Um, <laughs> what would ha you know, what's the alternative um, to, to those numbers? Bear in mind that those numbers have have come about as the result of the implementation of a policy uh, developed and implemented by a uh, a democratically elected government and supported the people. So we we have control. Those numbers are the result of decisions made by our elected representatives. This is what we chose. So in that sense, it's not illegitimate. It's you know you, this this is the result of, of democratic the democratic process. Um, what would happen if those numbers were different? Then who would not who who are the people who would be in who are in the country now who would not otherwise be in the country? Would we like to keep out some of the Ukrainians? Would we like to have not done our done our duty to British nationals in Hong Kong? Or would we like to leave bits of our public services short of staff? Would we like to leave jobs yeah, jobs empty? Uh, would we like to leave our university yeah, our HE sector un, un, underfunded? Um, so, in the sense that if they were not, if those people, the people represented by the numbers, were not here, 
there would be adverse consequences, you can put me down broadly in the, yes, this is a good thing column. But I'm fully aware that there are a lot of consequences and concerns that need to be answered by around mm. those numbers. And I think David will very eloquently express them in a, in a moment and we'll probably fail to have a big row. For, oh, for the we don't want to row. Consensus. Yeah, we, it's conversation. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We do. We, 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 no, we don't want, want to row. row. Yes, I do. I want to row. <laughs> David, um, uh, yeah. same question to you, I suppose. Uh, higher levels of net migration, good or a bad thing? Um, well, it is an expression of a lot of kind of long-term weaknesses in the British political economy and a lot of short-termism in the way that politics works. I think the the answer is the numbers are too high, clearly. I mean, the pressure, I mean, for two reasons. The pressure, pressure on infrastructure, what is it, something like seven million new registrations with GPs since 2010, huge pressure on housing. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. We know all about that. I mean, leave aside the kind of cultural integration questions, you know, riots in Leicester and all that. Um, but I think that the second big problem is that it's the kind of short-term drug, and it it allows us to to perpetuate short-termism on skills, on the health and you know why are we not training more nurses? Why are we not paying social care workers? a pound 50 above the minimum wage so that we don't have to bring in so you know half of the people coming in on work visas somebody said earlier are health and social care i mean that is surely wrong we just put construction workers on the shortage occupation list because we've got out because we've over expanded you know academic type uh you know often low level university courses we don't have enough people coming through with uh, with serious manual technical skills so we're we're over dependent on that so it's um, you know we are we're in a bind because of history we're in a bind because of what we've done over the uh, over recent decades and uh, you know and i have some sympathy i mean as madeline sumption was saying um i mean you know a government would obviously like to bring these numbers down but you know when you look at the particulars uh, i mean it's particularly unusually high at the moment when you but when you look at the particulars it's very difficult to see where you can do that there are one or two places i mean the dependence the huge number of dependents i mean a new route seems to have been discovered Probably partly through you know the clever marketing by uh, by the by the higher education sector you know going to places like India. I mean again, it's a conscious policy to become yeah. less dependent on Chinese students. So we've gone to India, we've gone to Nigeria, and we probably said, oh, and by the way, you can bring independence. Um, so someone doing a master's course at Hertfordshire University pays about fifteen hundred fifteen thousand quid, I think, for a master's course in business studies or whatever. They can then work i think while they're doing the course and they can bring in a spouse and children they can then stay for two years after so they and their spouse can work for for four years uh, and they can partly work while they're doing the course yeah. so you, you get four and a half years of work for 15 for an entry fee if you like of, of fifteen thousand pounds now of course we also want to be an education and research superpower um, and you know and, and and some bits of British society are celebrating the fact we got up to this six hundred thousand target for international students eight years before we were meant to but it's uh, you know there is a question about whether it really is what we want to do um yeah um and and, and James the 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 question I suppose the, the, as a country, and not, we're not the only country which needs to face uh, this as an issue, is the pressure, uh, the movement of people around the world is going to get uh, more severe uh, in the coming years. Climate change, 
the ch- the changing uh, state of countries in Africa, especially um, all those all those things, you know, conflicts as we've as we've seen in Ukraine, and so not having a policy to be able to control that and therefore help people who really need help is only this, this bomb only going to get Matt, worse. Matt, Matt just to, to, to yeah. we have a we have a policy that is able to control that. It is perfectly within the ambit of, of the British government to to reduce numbers if it wants to. It's just that it doesn't want to. Um, and I, you know, and I, I, you know, I just, to, to be fair, just to, to 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 fail to have a fight with David. I agree, I agree with pretty much everything David said about the the root causes of why why we do we we have made a decision. Why our leaders have made a decision to to run a policy that allows the, this number of people to enter the UK. And you know, that's absolutely right about the need to address skills about yeah you know, the nature you know, about our our policies. I'm not I'm not sure that. I'm not sure that you know, social care wages are entirely explained by you know, by, by the availability of uh, of migrant labour. I think there's a much bigger structural question about you know, social care. But should we should we fix social care reform, social care such that we are less dependent on low on low wage foreign workers? Yes, we definitely should. I mean, there's a lot. There are lots of things we should do that would have the consequence of making you know, of reducing UK demand for uh, for for overseas labour. But the, you don't fix those problems by by, by suddenly. Pulling, you know, pulling, pulling, the, pulling the lever on immigration policy, but the, the point is that lever could be pulled. You know, mm. you know, since 2016, or since 2020, the UK has had total ability, the total ability to to choose the numbers, you know, the numbers of people entry, and it does not do so. And the reason why some people on, I guess, on the other side of this debate from me, if you like, who are unhappy, I think they've got a perfect, they've got a perfectly you know, good case for being unhappy because politicians are hypocritical and cowardly, and they're not prepared to say. You know what? Yeah, we've decided collectively mm. that this level of immigration is the right level of immigration for the UK. Instead, they operate the policy that allows the numbers we'll see later this week, while simultaneously standing up and saying, "Oh, you know what? Immigration is yeah. terrible. We'd like to cut it." It's but, just it is dishonest um, mm. and it is unhelpful to you, 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 to, 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 you, to, you, to making the case for a sensible immigration policy. Most people in the country are fairly relaxed, are actually relatively relaxed about immigration. But those who are upset about it, who have concerns, you know, are right are right in feeling that their leaders are not listening and are not being honest with them. I agree with that. Matt, can I make a slightly separate point? I mean, we are very unusual as a country in having this huge focus on the net migration figure. And every quarter we have this political punch-up over it. No other country I know of. I I, I had lunch the other day with a German MP who was visiting here. He's he's very interested in migration. He sits on some committee, the Bundestag, uh, on migration, I asked him what was the net migration figure to Germany last year. He didn't have a clue. Look at America. America. Really the only thing about yeah. migration in America in America is yep. about um, illegal immigration or about green card permanent residents. We should focus far more on permanent residents because that is what sort of that. Into, if people have deep anxieties about large scale immigration, it's about the country changing too fast. It's about demographic change happening too quickly. And that is caused by too many people who are staying here permanently. Most of the migration we've been talking about is temporary. And and, and the permanent number is like about 120,000 a year at the moment, 130,000 a year. The, you know, it's much less frightening than these 700,000 figures. People glance at their paper and they think, what the hell is going on? We should focus much more 
on the people that are staying here permanently. More, 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 more militant centrist agreement on that one, I'm afraid. Yeah. Fet Fetishising fet 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 one net number is really unhelpful. And we, should, yeah. we, we, should, we, should take, we should take students out of it, we should disaggregate it, we should have, yeah. we should have a conversation about the different components of, of that, in that, that, net, yeah. that net number population and not the overall number. But uh, that makes, goes back to your, your, your point, James, about the dishonesty of this debate. The debate, you know, it's, it's the Conservative Party, bluntly, in part fueled by Nigel Farage and UKIP, whatever, who A, put this focus on it, then then made a series of pledges, which they haven't just uh, met, uh, not met due to incompetence. They've not met it deliberately. They're right now, we've yeah, got this, this, this policy of, you know, the Prime Minister now saying he wants to reduce net migration, but he's also going to grow the economy. Well, you can't do both. For, for, for a decade, the Conservative Party policy on immigration has been messages boiled down to you saying, yes, you are right to be concerned about the overall level of net migration, but we will not cut it. That, that is that 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 is the conservative position. That, 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 that is a recipe for making people unhappy about immigration. But to, to be fair to the party, I think they or the government, they kind of represent the nation's schizophrenia about this issue. <laughs> I mean, we're all conflicted about it. Well, I mean, and I think we're underestimating. I mean, there has been there was after Brexit a decline in anxiety about immigration. It's gone right back up again, partly because of the small boats, but also because the rising number of net migration. When you look at this seven hundred thousand figure. So, I mean, like 60% of people, I think, now say it, it should come down. But when you ask them in particular, you reduce the number of The polite description for it is electoral cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Uh, the public can want very contradictory things at the same time. They can be worried about, you know, they can be worried about yeah. overall migration levels yeah. and not actually, yeah. when you ask them about the individual component groups, want any of those 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 groups to be reduced in size. Yeah, it's, it's pull up the drawbridge. Oh, no, they're okay. I don't know, yeah. they're okay. Yeah. Oh, actually, we probably could do with them. And actually, you yeah. know, they're, they're very nice. Yeah, there, uh, might, there might be. There might, there's pretty, there's, there's, when, you, when you come come down to it, there's probably one. There's probably one unskilled potato picker in Lincolnshire who's the one person that the British public is unhappy about being here. Everybody else is fine. Up until the um, point we asked, do you want to pick the potatoes instead? They're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're not yeah, happy. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, um, let's let's stop there in case you two end up disagreeing. Um, but it's been genuinely never, fascinating. Never. And hopefully, hopefully, a, a really. Um, useful sort of primer for the uh, the debate which will rage all over again when those figures come out uh, later in the week. James Kirkup, uh, still just about uh, outgoing director of the Social Market Foundation, and David Goodhart, head of demography, immigration and in the integration unit at the Policy Exchange Think Tank. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and get in touch with me, Matt, at times.radio. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Goodbye.